Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Pod Canada, episode 19. This week, we're joined by Howling Minds to talk about Kawa and Howling Minds' recent sort of trip down to Manchester for the Lorcana tournament, as well as break down the current Lorcana constructed meta because we've seen a lot of developments over the past few weeks. I think we've seen even more <clears throat> meta diversity as the game has continued to evolve, which is very, very interesting. Anyway, Howling Mods, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And for people listening that don't know you yet, just want to set a foundation. Can you talk a little bit about yourself, what you do in TCGs, etc.? You know, a little, little elevator pitch. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, hi, my name is Scott, uh, also known as Howling Minds on the internet. I've been around in the card game space for about a decade or so, been doing everything from kind of like Magic the Gathering to Flesh and Blood to then Marvel Snap and now Lorcana as well. Uh, I'm mostly a content creator, have been uh, mostly full-time for about two years, been doing it kind of on and off for five or six. Uh, and I write a lot of articles, mostly. Um, I've always been kind of a fan of the written written medium. So at the moment, I'm writing for Channel Fireball and for TCG Player. So any of the little kind of content you kind of see going up over there, uh, good chance my name is stapled on it. Uh, and I've just recently gotten myself back into making some video content too for some for some gameplay and stuff there. So kind of just a, a, a card game veteran at this point who knows some of the things he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, with your with your YouTube channel, is that done solely through yourself? Sorry, I just asked from outside looking in because I've seen some of the the verbiage used. And it, it, it alludes to a team. So is that a, is that a channel that you started completely on your own? Yeah, so Beyond the Inkwell is my new project over on YouTube for everything Lorcana. Uh, it is currently just me. Mm. Um, it comes from experience of like being able to kind of dip your hands in all the pies and stuff. I edit everything. I kind of write all the scripts, narrate everything, all, all the all the bells and whistles. But I didn't want to design it up front as a point where it's like, hi, it's just me. It's always going to be me. Or I've just branded it as Howling Minds. I, I wanted to get to a point where if there are other creators in the UK who wanted to kind of step up and get involved and be able to create content on the platform or even elsewhere, like across the world, like I want to be able to build a, a place like a community where Lorcana players can kind of share uh, the kind of content that we're creating. So it, it felt best to kind of create a, a brand overall that could be expanded and more people could be brought on board than just be howling minds again in another, in another space. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. I want you both to talk to me about your tournament this past weekend in Manchester. Uh, give me the high level details first. So how many players, what was the format? Um, what did the venue kind of look like, et cetera? Um, and then walk me through what lists you both brought. Yep. So it was uh, 72 players. Uh, it was five rounds of Swiss, which then led into top cut of 16. So top 16, and then went to top eight, top four etc uh the lists uh we brought very similar lists it was it was it was quite funny uh i actually said to helling before i was like oh i really don't want to do the the ruby amethyst mirror match it's funny it's that that was before we did the pod last week where brendan showed me this magical new version of uh <laughs> ruby amethyst so that's the list that i brought like card for card your version brendan so the kind of evasive package and i believe helling you had a similar type of list but maybe not not as many evasives Similar concept, yeah. So, uh, Brendan knows this. I'm a bit of a sucker for my broom loops. If I'm playing like the Ruby Amethyst Mirrors, I like to go the lot. I like to go the distance, uh, and kind of really push what you, what you can do in those matchups. But I agree that the uh, the evasive like characters are 
very solid in the matchup and like probably just well positioned overall right now. So I found myself on a still on a 67 card list that had the the ability to go long and play every everything you could possibly want in a brew package. But I kind of removed those cards like the Queen and stuff like that that you mm. see and facilitated like more copies of Goofy, more copies of Pongo, this kind of stuff, so that I could appeal to the same sensibilities as yourself in the mirror match and be able to get a three game set done in 50 minutes potentially by being able to play to the table and also just having more threats I could present. Um, when I knew that I could activate my mirrors more aggressively than the other person. Mm. I think three game set is ambitious, even if you're if both Ruby Amethyst players are on the evasive list. So the list that I play, which will pop up later, um, by the way, for decklist, if you're listening on audio platforms, I recommend you go to the description. We'll be linking to the decklist we're talking about. If you're watching on YouTube, there will be images popped up as well as in the description. There will be links. Um, but I think if both players are on the Ruby Amethyst evasive package, I don't even know what to call the deck at this point, but basically the deck that we showcased on last week's pod and which will be in the description. Um, game three or a three game set is very ambitious um you i I think if one player is on the tradition more traditional 67 card list like hyper control i'm playing i'm playing queens i'm playing brooms mickeys etc the evasive list can beat it pretty quickly because they simply just cannot sort of one for one you remove remove on the board and you can tend to outvalue them quite quickly and i think that the aggressor is heavily favored in that matchup but if both players are on the evasive package i think that you basically have to play to win game one um which is something i want to talk to you guys about later about this sort of the ethics of game threes when it comes to or game twos when it comes to ruby amethyst mirrors because locally or at least you know in the more casual setting where i've been playing although i've been playing against competitive players I haven't run into this issue, but I assume that people maybe winning game one and trying to slow play you through game two was actually something that likely happened in a tournament. A lot of mirrors uh, over over the weekend, so yeah, I got some I got some thoughts on that one. Yeah, which is not super clarifying the rules. Obviously, I think it's highly unethical to slow play. When slow play would probably be defined as a change of pace as you move from game one to game two. Um, but you know, Larkana leaves a lot to be desired when it comes to rules and stuff like that. So yeah, anyway, when I think game three is <laughs> it's a stretch for sure. So uh, my my sort of ideology when it comes to the Ruby Amethyst mirror, especially because I played a lot of true mirrors now that my locals have swapped over to this list is that uh, a three game set is ambitious and you have to play to win game one. I think winning game one is very, very critical um, uh, to that matchup. Anyway, how did you all do end up doing in the tournament? What were y'all's records? Uh, Helling, I'll, I'll let you go first. Oh, okay, sure. I, uh, that's reasonable. Uh, so unfortunately, I lost my winning in for Top Cut. Uh, was a bit of a, a, an awful situation to find myself in as it was one of those... Uh, those mirrors we were just kind of alluding to that was my last round. Um, and to be fair, my opponent played it exceptionally well. Uh, just I kind of had a, a game in the middle that uh, wasn't really a game, which is kind of rare in Lorcana's case, but these things kind of do happen. Um, so ended up on an X2 record, which is fine. Uh, the other loss just came to uh, a whole new world, removing my hand and replacing it with uninkables. Uh, and that, that's, again, part and parcel of kind of what happens sometimes. So felt like very happy with the list, just unfortunately in the one match that kind of uh, would decide whether we got to keep playing, uh, didn't didn't quite have it break my way. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, uh, had an awful weekend. Uh, it was it was, it was was truly awful. Uh, I brought the list to, you know, tech against the, uh, the mirror match. I saw plenty of people in the room playing it, didn't face a single one. So... Yeah, and, and often it was all in the winners bracket, Kawhi. Yeah, right. yeah, everyone, everyone was up there. I was like, like here. Yeah, so I won game one, which was against uh, Amber Steel. Uh, it was quite a comfortable win. I kind of got a top deck, Goofy, I think, to kind of get the last bit of questing out. 
Uh, game I was so annoyed at game two. So I faced Amethyst Emerald, and game one, I had I mulliganed perfectly, right? I literally drew three houses in a row, right? And you were actually wait. This is I think this might be the game that you're watching, Helling. I needed one card to draw one card to ink it to get to eight ink to play my three houses to win the game. Uninkable, mm. uninkable, uninkable. I'm like, you actually can't make this shit up. I got, I got so mad. I was getting so mad. And then I pulled back game two. It was like pretty easy. And then I think it was like a similar. No, actually, no. Game three, I did misplay. So after that, it kind of, I wouldn't say it went downhill, but like I, I did listen to you, Brendan. There was one matchup where I got stomped within about, I, I would say three or four minutes. Uh, as in like, you know, it's turn four, turn five. I'm like, I'm not winning this. My hand is shit. Mm. I just said, all right, GG's. And he was kind of shocked. And then I fucking took the ne the next game back super fast. So I think that advice is really good, right? If you feel like you're losing a match, especially because this, this is best of three within 50 minutes, uh, just move on to the next game. If you're confident you can win the next two games without having to make it go to a draw, you should do that. Uh, almost paid off. I just I just lost the bad hands, honestly. I, I feel like my opponent top decking whole new world when they're playing Steel Sapphire. So yeah, I went there. Uh, I went 1-4. I won my first game and just... Mm. Yeah. I, would, I will say that uh, the math on getting playing Elsa is actually not great uh, in that deck. So you have 21 uninkables. Mm. You're about 97% to have 7 ink by turn 7, which is why you have 4 Ursula. Uh, yeah. And the math is just not as good to play Elsa. That's why. Yeah, the 8th one gets a lot worse. Yeah. I, had, I had the 4. I did have the 4 the four Ursulas. Like, they, they were the 3 the three Elsas within my list. Mm. So uh, yeah. yeah, it just sucked. Mm. Um. I want to ask you, oh, Howling, we did obviously we talked about you. I want to ask you the logic behind playing 67 cards. You're someone who comes mm. from a Magic the Gathering background. How do you justify playing 67 cards in a game like Lorcana? Sure. Um, so in, in a game like Lorcana, uh, for me, in Magic's world, like consistency is key because if you end up in spots where, oh, I drew too many lands, I drew too many spells, I can't actually play the game. Lokana offers you the flexibility to be able to play additional inkable cards that have like silver bullet utility or uh, genuinely like very powerful effects that kind of mitigate the need to be so consistent if you're not worried about finding specific cards in specific matchups. And I find a deck like Ruby Amethyst, that's not the case. Like your, your deck is just super powerful in general, especially if you're playing multiple copies of the kind of cards you're looking for. You're not looking for a whole new world. You're not looking for a card that your whole deck kind of pivots around. You are playing a powerful game plan regardless of what you do. And so I'd like to lean towards having a higher density of like silver bullet inkables that are, are going to be blank 90 to 95% of the time. But the 5% of the time that they aren't ink, they're going to win me again. Uh, and that's kind of how I facilitate rationalizing the higher number. Um, I, I also tend to find it's, it's maybe a bit of a crutch um, because I have only really kind of started getting competitive with Orkana in the last two, three months, somewhere in that kind of ballpark. And I find that there are people that are better at the Ruby Amethyst mirrors than me. I'm very aggressive with my mirrors, that kind of thing. Uh, and there is definitely a little bit of a sensibility there that I know I'm perhaps a little bit too aggressive with my mirrors so I can bail myself out by, by having more cards. Yeah, I've actually... So in the, in the Heads Up Mirror... I've never gone to fatigue, even like I said, like it's hard to get to game three. Um, mm. I, I do think that if you play the list, the sixty card list that runs the evasive package, the fatigue is an un, not not likely. You're not likely to go there. It actually it sort of runs as a matchup where one player is very much the beatdown and one is one is not trying to pivot back into the game and become become the beatdown and 
both both decks have sort of the modality to be the control deck or be the aggressive deck. Um, and a lot of people think the mirror is hinged on magic mirror, <laughs> but it, while it's a great card, it's pretty bad against evasive characters. So if someone pongos on four, you, you, if you go into your turn four saying you're on the draw or you're on the play, you're going into your turn five and you're like, okay, just activate magic mirror, do nothing. Um, you're losing a lot of tempo. Sometimes you need to do that to find the, the answer, but I've just seen a lot of players <clears throat> play the mirror and complain about the sort of the how early they draw magic mirror so often players were aggressively mulligan for that card um because it is so powerful in the traditional mirror right the older hyper control list uh, i just think it is not nearly as impactful uh once you switch over to the evasive list that being said there is another card that is more impactful and that is cauldron i think that cauldron is absolutely disgusting nuts crazy <laughs> that is the card that you should mulligan for Cauldron's Cauldron's a really tough one uh, for me because I've been having a discussion with a teammate of mine, actually, Dave Carf, who I'm sure he'll love me shouting him out on any kind of media that I get a chance to. Uh, he comes from Magic as well, so he's kind of got a background in like uh, what we used to call Countertop, which is a deck that you, you play in the Legacy format yeah. based around manipulating the top card of your library uh, and using that to your advantage. So we won't go any deeper for the little kind of folks. But Ursula's Cauldron is very similar in style to the like, pivotal main namesake card of that deck and what, what it allowed you to achieve. And Ruby Amethyst is a deck that plays very similarly to Countertop as a deck. So he's just like four Cauldron. Like, I just get it in my deck. I want I want, I want, want as many as I possibly can. The card's like absolutely insane. And while I don't think that's necessarily where you should go, it's uninkable. It's it's worse in models. Um, there is definitely an argument that it is... Like if you find it early, it's just the best card in the deck in the mirror. It gives you so much leeway over having control of the pace of what's happening and what cards actually matter that I think people are kind of under-respecting it at the moment. Yeah. Um, I do also think that we're kind of leaning towards an era where people are coming away from the 67 card situation. I myself am on like 62 at the moment um, because I found you can be... Uh, you can you can kind of still prevent the fatigue situation by having enough uh, befuddles in your deck that you can just go infinite with the brooms anyway. Uh, and as long as you know when to stop drawing with your mirrors, you can stop yourself from ever decking out because you can just loop broom, befuddle, broom repeatedly to be able to keep yourself from ever running out of cards. Uh, and that kind of lets you still play to that more aggressive plan with the, the evasives and have a backup plan for the like hyper-control versions of the deck. Yeah, I think that... If we if we looked for one, two, maybe three weeks, I think that every most people will come down to sixty cards. I do think that it was a bit of a fallacy in the beginning, and we saw car, we saw decks perf performing well at that sixty four or sixty seven card threshold. Um, but that was not why the decks were performing well. I think that this i the idea that you have an advantage in the mirror because you have more cards in deck and you can activate mirror more aggressively uh, just doesn't end up materializing as players shift to more aggressive packages just in the mirror in general um yeah one thing i want to i want to ask you howling minds is so overall in terms of like ruby amethyst as a deck do you feel i mean both of you ended up on the deck for the tournament do you feel that that is the the best deck in lorcana right now and do you think that the meta is potentially shifting in a way that can push ruby amethyst out of that top spot if you do believe that uh, do you want me to take it first, Kyle? Or do you? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Sure. Um, so this might be a bit of a controversial opinion, but Ruby Amethyst is not the best deck in Lorcana right now. Mm -hmm. um, it is the most flexible deck. Um, if you are walking into a big tournament with a lot of rounds and you want consistency, Ruby Amethyst is the best deck for you. You have a solid game plan. You don't have any lopsided matchups. You're always going to be able to leverage your player skill to the maximum level, which is what Ruby Amethyst lets you do. Um, 
I do think the best deck in the game is Amber Steel. Um, I do think, uh, for the most part, having a proactive game plan in set one, first chapter, Lorcana, that lets you be the one posing the questions instead of the ones requiring the answers is a fundamentally stronger thing to be doing. And I think the good Amber Steel players who are starting to realize you don't have to have all the plans in your deck. You can be like a Stitch Rockstar deck mm -hmm. that has a whole new world in the Lilos, the Simbas, this kind of stuff. Or you can be the, you know, you have forgotten me, Cerberus's beast hard-headed deck. But you don't have to be both. You don't have to contain both those game plans. And a picking a lane are the ones having the most success. And I do think the players who know what they're doing in every matchup with that deck are playing the best deck in Morgan. Interesting. Yeah. So it's funny because Steel Amber is a it's a wide range of deck lists when we talk about it. Like it, it's probably one of the only color combinations where you can see sort of drastically different archetypes in that single. They're just different decks. Yeah. They're like it, I, I wrote an article this week and uh, there's two lists from one of these two Ks that both Amber Steel both did very well and they share nine named cards. Mm -hmm. Like total yeah. between everything they're playing. I was like, these are these aren't they're both Amber Steel decks, but they're different decks. They are just entirely different game plans. And for a game with one set of cards, that's ridiculously deep. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because I agree and disagree with you in a sense. I do think that uh that steel amber is probably the most overrated deck which is funny but i also think it's very powerful i just think that the the sort of steel song uh mid-range version that has the cerberuses and the beast i think that that deck is starting to exist in a meta that is extremely hostile for it i genuinely believe that that deck has very 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 little equity against the control matchup especially against ruby amethyst but also against amber sapphire um i would i would i think that match that matchup is genuinely close to a buy it is obviously losable if they nut draw and they have you know a million stitches i mean probably literally four stitches but outside of that your rapunzel's will do nothing i mean a lot of your cards do basically nothing and but once you get to that sort of i mean you can run cerberus you can run Kronk. You can run those cards in your deck, and that's what they've been trying to do. They run the Hades, Infinite Loop, they start running the Kronks, throwing higher top end, but fundamentally, once you get past 7 ink and you get to the 8 ink, Ruby Amethyst has the best card quality in the game. What card for card, one for one on board, and they're drawing more cards than you, by the way. Their cards will outvalue your cards. So you can't beat them in that game plan. I genuinely think that that matchup is terrible for you. That being said, this sort of wheel steal with the Stitch Rockstar that dumps its hand really quick, plays whole new world. That deck, I think, is much more well positioned. You do lose equity against aggro playing that list, right? You have less sort of AoE board removal to an extent. You have these less big characters, but. I think it's just a better list by far, to be honest, right now. I agree entirely that I think that deck is the better deck. Um, it's definitely where I am with Amber Steel right now. But I find it really hard to say that a deck that's still packing like four giant tank, four grab your swords, is like losing aggro equity. Mm -hmm. Like the deck still feels like it's just very favored there. Uh, I think a lot of the the learning curve for people with Amber Steel has been like when we when we first picked up the deck, everyone's like, "This is insane! Rapunzel's the best card in in Lorcana. Oh my god!" And then we all sat there and went, "Well, what if we just don't sing our songs like an idiot?" and have our opponent put damage on their characters and draw three cards every time we do that. And, and as the player base has kind of evolved and gotten better at the game and Rapunzel is ink more often and ridiculous power card less often, you kind of see that disparity getting a lot closer in terms of power level. And I think that kind of, for me, really puts me off that kind of mid-rangey, grindy version of, of uh, Amber Steel. 
Uh, but I do really think that the Rockstar deck, when played by someone who knows what they're doing, is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially I think that one of the best ways to beat Ruby Amethyst is to go under it. And if you go wide enough before turn seven, um, you're in a really good spot. Also, if you play against, we'll talk more about Sapphire Amber, which I think is an emerging control deck list um, that is that is well positioned to Ruby Amethyst and is good against the general field. That deck struggles a lot against its Rockstar and, and uh, strategies to go wide because it doesn't have uh, the removal and be prepared. It has single target removal in the form of Hades and Let It Go and stuff like that. I want to ask you guys a question in regards to the general player skill and decks that you saw show up to that tournament. Did you feel like you were facing any decks that were created out of a lack of card availability? Do you think were a lot of your opponents on budget decks or did it feel like a lot of your opponents were playing uh, meta decks? Uh, I'll take it first. Honestly, I felt I felt like a lot of my opponents were playing meta decks. Honestly, like they they just had really really good decks. Most of the decks that I faced, it was Amber Steel, and I mean I didn't face it, but it was just I was I was surprised how much Ruby Amethyst there was. There was a lot, like yeah, like a lot of. Ruby I Amethyst. would say I would say between Amber Steel and Ruby Amethyst, it was a good seventy five percent of the room. Uh, mm. between those two decks yeah, and, um, um, which is right. kind of what I expected going in um, but yeah I agree with Kawa like I my first round opponent sat down and was like this is my first ever TCG uh, this is my first time doing this I'm brand new and I was like okay cool like uh, yeah, let's see where this ends up and I'm staring down like two giant tinks on turn like five and I'm like everyone's decks are just flush no one's no one's turned up with you know I I found a pack in the boot of my car and added it yeah. to my car like, like it, everyone who was playing uh, new, uh, new local, unlocal, veteran, otherwise, everyone's decks were like completely flush. Yeah, even like uh, I faced, like I said, that emerald, uh, emerald amethyst list that just had everything in it. Had the Cusco's, had the genies, had like, and I, I guess like you know, at least like that, there's not too many legendaries in it, so it's probably easier to build, right? Like you don't have to have all of the all the Elsas, all the Rapunzel's, all that type of stuff. Um, but yeah, it was still a good deck. Like it was still a solid, solid deck. Like a two hundred and fifty dollar deck, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is obviously the, bun- the budget entry point for like complete Lorcana decks. Mm. But yeah, no, no one turned up with half of an Emerald Steel deck. Like mm. anyone who was playing the archetype had all the options they would want available to them, and and had made choices to what cards they were playing. I think, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's funny because that's been my experience as well. Uh, every time I've played Lokata on paper, all of my opponents have had pretty much, they've had access to every single card that they could want. Every which is which is wild for you, right? Because you're talking about all of this, like obviously all the stock short- shortages in the US. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah everyone it's, it's still has. Well, yeah. I bring it up because uh, I remember my friend Sasha posted a green blue list and he was like oh mm. i'm xo with this list he was, he was actually playing wood tier on pixelborn which is <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely get a matchmaking bracket so i was making fun of it but then he get, he was he came back at me and he was like oh yeah but i mean he, he was saying that i was playing against people you know i was playing in person against some of these people my record was due you know it was partly due to card availability because my opponents were showing up with basically starter decks and I think that's a fair criticism, but that is, it, I've been surprised that that's never been the case. I've been surprised at mm. how spiky people have been with the list. I, I kind of come back to this from Marvel Snap, and in, in Marvel Snap, one of the things I, I always say on my podcast is that the people that want the best decks, that are not willing to sacrifice like the, the, the quality of their decks, not willing to play a suboptimal list, tend to be the players that are more casual. Not that your spikes don't also want the top list, but nobody asked me for the list in Marvel Snap more than my friends that are casual mobile gamers and play once every few months like they want the list they want the win and i think that that permeates to these physical card games as well where people want to be playing the best decks and they come prepared when they're coming to a tournament and that even though there, there is a scarce amount of you know sort of card availability is scarce and prices are high um 
these tournaments are very competitive. And I think I found that a lot of my opponents have come super prepared. How did you guys feel about overall player skill? Like you said, the person you played said there was the first time there uh, they played a TCG. How did that sort of permeate across the rest of your matchups? So this is, I kind of talked to Carl about this in person a little bit, but lokana has got something really lightning in a bottle going on where I've been around a long time. I've been, I've been in the TCG space. Yeah. Best, best part of 10 years. Uh, and I'm used to turning up to winner boxes and 1Ks and 2Ks and stuff. And you know everybody in the room. Mm-hmm. They've been to an event before. You, you've seen them and stuff. And it's kind of the first time I sat down in a very long time where I looked around the room and went, there is 20 people in here that I don't know. Uh, and I've never met before. And again, I was pleasantly surprised by a lot of those people in terms of their actual player skill. You know, you don't expect them to be incredible, but they were much better than you, you would think from someone who's just began picking up a TCG. But towards the top tables, that is a murderous row. Um, it, I, I was genuinely kind of surprised in the fact there's a lot of people I recognize as being big faces in the UK scenes from other card games, be that Magic, be that Flesh and Blood, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, whatever, um, that have made their way over into Lorcana. And there is some transferability in those skills. Uh, thank God, or I would be in trouble. Um, so, yeah, as you kind of made your way towards the top tables, people are just like as good as I would expect them to be in any other card game. There's very much like no visible gap. Um, but there is that kind of new player situation going on towards... So I, I would say of the 72, like, you know, 80% of those players were like people I, I would genuinely think could win a tournament on any given day, yeah. which is which is an incredible conversion rate in my opinion and not something I see in, in many other situations. That's what I love about Lorcana. Lorcana's rule set uh, makes it, it, it seems like it. So I think that there is a bit of a honeymoon phase going on where people that are not um, sort of veteran or seasoned card gamers are enjoying the game and, and they're having fun with it. And they're continually engaging with it, whether that's showing up to locals, showing up to tournaments, et cetera. And obviously those people, you know, they show up to enough, they will eventually become veterans themselves. I, I, I'm interested to see as we sort of progress, um, you know, in time moving forward, if that will still be the case. Um, and people will, cause that is what makes Lorcana special is that Lorcana is a very skill intensive, uh, sort of quantitative game and it's very skill rewarding and that's why i i've it's been my favorite constructed game that i've ever played um because it has been the most diverse meta it has been one of the most skill expressive i mean comparable to flesh and blood in that sense but it also is appealing to the casual player base where something like flesh and blood is is not i'm not in totality but in a sense that is flesh and blood's greatest weakness is that it 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 struggles to sort of appeal to a casual player base because it has so much complexity on the surface level where if you look at something like Lorcana, it is very very basic in the rule set but when you get down into the weeds and you get down into how you're actually trading and how you're trying to extract value out of a game it's extremely complicated like it is extremely complicated like Lorcana is a game that i I smacked my head against the wall for a solid one to two weeks being like, I'm so bad at this game. Like what? Like I'm so bad at this game. This game is so hard, uh, et cetera. And it took a while to actually like sort of have a somewhat break your mind and feel like I actually could, uh, you know, could hang like the game. The game is genuinely very, very, very punishing. And the systems, the systems lend themselves towards that. The system where you ink a card from your hand is one of the most punishing resource systems that exist. You might think like, oh, Magic the Gathering is the most punishing resource system because you don't draw the land, you lose the game. But when you're given the choice as the player <laughs> to ink the wrong card 
It was a discussion we had kind of lent to the weekend. And I, I, I don't know how often uh, Carl was around when I was yelling at people about it, but I'm, I'm sure you kind of caught wind of it from time to time. I had some people from other card games being like, man, I wish I could interact on my opponent's turn. Can you like imagine if I could mother knows best when my opponent is trying to like challenge my stuff? And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> but don't go anywhere near that with a barge pole. It's great that card games exist where if you want all the interaction points, all the micro decisions and that kind of stuff, that there's something for you. That's exactly what flesh and blood is. I can I can you know pivot at every point and interact in both players' turns. And I love that from a competitive space. But Lorcani is lightning in a bottle because if you want to go deep, if you want to go digging in the roots and then in the, in, the, in the weeds, you can find all the depth and corner cases that you want and really leverage your player skill. If you want to play with your six-year-old daughter at the kitchen table, she can pick up a deck can absolutely smack you silly and doesn't need to know what you're doing in your turn or all these weird instant speed interaction points or rules cases the base rules are fundamental they're really simple and that allows people that aren't traditionally interested in card games to come and get involved and come and have a go and they it's not that they feel like they're a potato when they sit down they get it they understand immediately and that's something no other card game really has going for it and i think it's so important for an ip like disney which is traditionally targeted towards a younger audience anyway to have a very simple to end like to enter card game with a lot of depth that's how they retain these new players that the industry has been failing to like hang on to or even attract for the longest time yeah it really does it really does feel like lorcana has sort of captured a section of the market that a lot of tcgs have tried to in the past where they're trying to appeal i mean because Let's be honest, the money is with the casual player base, but your game can sort of, it's tough for your game to exist and to thrive in the beginning if it doesn't have depth because you won't have that sort of passionate player base that tends to stick with it. If it it is very, very, if it is too, I don't know, it doesn't go deep enough, right? If it's too surface level, et cetera. Um, So blending them both perfectly is I think what Lorcana has done. And I'm just really impressed on the, on the depth, right? The meta has been the meta, like this is a single set. We are playing a single set of constructed. The meta is continually evolving literally week to week, actually like not in terms of, Oh, I've refined the Ruby Amethyst list by putting one or two cards here. And now I've refined the meta. No, it's like, Oh, now Sapphire Amber is like a, a deck to watch out for. Oh, now Amethyst, Amethyst Emerald is like this emerging aggro deck. This, the Amber Steel deck has changed. Like it is in flux. We, we kind of joked about it going into the weekend. It was like, there's so many questions about what the metagame looks like. And we've gone through this whole weekend with so many $2,000 tournaments and we have more questions. Yeah. How does, how does that happen? Like nothing's been answered. We know even less than we did before, which it, that doesn't happen in sets that only have one game. You, you like uh, other way around. What games only has one set because you rely on additional complexity from new cards releasing. We've just kind of been looking back through our bulk binders in Lorcana's case and going, you know what might be pretty good? that and it is it is pretty good and then something else is then good because that thing is good and every week has been like a different flavor which makes no sense when nothing has changed Mm. we talked about this uh for people listening we talked about this before we hopped on the pod how uh the the card game content creator is faced with this paradigm of speaking in absolutes so that people listen but true the true answers are always enveloped in nuance right so to say something is a buy or to say a deck is the best is it never is usually it's not what that person fully believes and if they do they're probably not that good at card games but it tends to be the statements that actually sort of hold weight and they they sort of cement themselves and people pay attention to them right so if i was to make absolute statements about the meta of Lorcana and where i actually believe it is i do think that ruby amethyst is the best deck i think that the 60 card list is the way to go and i think the evasive package 
is better versus aggro and drastically better than the mirror. I think that the mirror is much easier if the opponent doesn't have opposing evasive characters and inherently playing the board, even if you're playing understated characters, like in the form of Pongo and Goofy will give you more equity versus some of those go wide aggro decks. Cause you will be able to contest board outside of just be prepared. I think that it is not particularly, uh, it's not as close the way pixel born paints. And we've talked about the data integrity of pixel born and how that can not be accurate of an actual metagame. Um, but I do think that the metagame is a bit more narrow then might be shown by the the Pixelborn data. That being said, I do think it is in flux. Although the the meta is not as diverse as it, is, as it may appear to be, if you look at the sort of aggregate Pixelborn data, it is still in flux. I do think that Ruby Amethyst is, when I say it's the best deck, and I firmly do believe it's the best deck, it is very much the best deck this week. It could not be next week. Like I think the Ruby Amethyst, and specifically this evasive list, answers a lot of questions. It answers the mirror. It answers aggro decks. It also, there was a pesky matchup in the form of uh, red green evasive that matchup is now an absolute buy because you have your single target removal and you compete with them on board so you can trade with them on board but as there's more go wide steel aggro decks as i saw a blue green deck make t- top eight i'm telling you blue green absolutely wrecks really that deck's awesome. good yes that that deck is good i think i i, I kind of had the pleasure of writing about it uh, a week ago because it, it's a really good budget deck like we sat down and we're like yeah you, you can play this thing for 150 bucks and it just whips Ruby Amethyst in, in, in what it's able to do. And I'm like, yeah, eventually we're going to get to the point where that's just a good enough reason to, to pick up a deck and, and, and play it. So yeah. uh, keep, keep your eyes open for, for green, blue. Yeah, we're in a bit of a rock, paper, scissors kind of scenario. But I do think that Ruby Amethyst at most tournaments is the the gun, right? Like the rock, paper, scissors gun. Like it does just, it it is very, very solid. It's very, very consistent. Um, and I just think it's a, it's a great list to be playing right now, but it, it could be in flicks. So I want to start talking about some lists. I'm going to pop them up on the image, uh, sort of our images here. For people watching on YouTube, I'm going to try to pop them up for not as long so you can see our faces. Like I, it kind of covers a lot because, you know, these deck lists are huge. So I'll pop it up, but again, description, that's where all the lists are, um, et cetera. So definitely go there. That's that's the best resource. And if you're listening, you'll see it in the description there as well. So I want to talk about that blue-green deck first as well. So this deck, Howling, um, I think that yeah, it's just Kuzco is really good against Ruby Amethyst. I've seen, I've heard from Emerald players relay this feedback, and I've heard people talk about like, oh, you just be prepared then. It's like... If Kuzco, a single Kuzco on board takes a be prepared, that's a win for them. And if it doesn't, you can't cycle target and move that. And Kuzco effectively, it threatens this sort of this foundation that your opponent starts on 12 lore almost. If they draw correctly, it almost feels like they start on 12 lore. And that means that throughout the rest of the game, they only need to eke out like eight lore from all these other characters, all these other threats. So Kuzco is super nasty. Another card that I think that this, if you really want to beat up on Ruby Amethyst and you want to play blue-green, which I think is one of the most underrated color combinations in Larkana, you should play Donald Duck. That's another ward character, and it's a pain in the butt. But talk to me about this list, Howling Minds, and what you what you like about it, where you see it flourishing. Yeah. I could talk about this deck all day. Um, selfish little plug, there is actually a gameplay video of this deck over on my YouTube channel, uh, on Beyond the Inkwells. If you want to see it played, you can, because uh, I was fascinated by this concept when I first kind of saw it coming out. Um, the original people who built this list, they called it um, Blue Green High Five. And the, the name behind that was, if it goes past turn five, you've lost. They very much built the original list to get on the table, end the game by turn five. And it's kind of evolved a little bit since then, in the sense that you have a little more get yourself to 15, 16, 17 law, and the Cusco will close the door because it's so hard for it to get it off the table when you eventually find it. But the concept is like kind of the same. 
Um, you're going to find yourself with some super aggressive starts with this list that, you know, we kind of expect from all these Emerald decks, your Flynn Riders, your Cheshire Cats, this kind of stuff that can quest early aggressively. Um, but this deck is really good at kind of leveraging the end game and finishing up. So we accelerate into our fives, courtesy of things like Mickey Mouse Detective. And this deck has so many ridiculous five cost cards. Cusco, Mad Hatter, Aurora, Blue Maleficent, Let It Go, all these things just... A, a turn early are like ridiculous but if you take a look at the average like quest value of any card that costs more than like three in this deck it's like cool we got eight law early then everything quests for three mm. you have to kill everything or you lose the game and but that's kind of the beauty of this with like blue maleficent as we say Cusco, mad hat that kind of stuff, even hands like it's just so many big numbers it's like jamming stats in another game like marvel stat as it, you just kind of turn around and go do something Mm -hmm. uh, here's, here's, here's the question do something about it and that's kind of like epitomized most in uh, seeing the copies like Eye of the Fates in this deck because it really does show you what this deck is looking to do is like law 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 early okay you answered all my stuff here's a thing that quests for three it kind of secretly quests for four do something about it oh you let me have it for a turn here's another thing that quests for four do something about it Go on, you know, you want to. And like, that's why you don't see these like Hades and stuff like that at the top end of this deck or the genies or anything like that. We're not getting there. That's not what this is about. It quests for three or it quests early. Uh, the, the only exceptions to that is like let it go because that card is possibly the best spot removal card in the entirety of Volcana because uh, it goes in the inkwell or you sing it on turn three off of an Aurora and your opponent gets very upset. Yeah. Uh, deck, deck's great. 10 out of 10. No, no notes. Uh, I think Eye of the Fates is pretty funny. I think Eye of the Fates is one of the more underrated cards in Lorcana, specifically because some of the use cases like you talked about in this deck, but also in the Sapphire Amber deck, um, the gold blue deck. Mm -hmm. uh, the gold blue deck does run the infinite Hades loop, so this is the small Hades, the three cost Hades. And if you land an Eye of the Fates or two Eye of the Fates on the battlefield, and you have, if you are doing infinite Hades, which basically means you play Hades onto the battlefield, if they remove it, you play the other one out of hand, and you never extend past having one Hades back in hand. You basically are threatening two to three lore on that single Hades, which basically can't get removed. Um, it can be removed from a tempo perspective, right? But they will simply just replay it. Oh, Ruby Amethyst trying to deal with that. That specific sequence uh, feels unfreaking winnable. Like, it is so bad if they land those cards. Alright, moving on to the next one. This is the Sapphire Amber list. So this is play. This was, um, this was in Austin, Texas. The top four split. Um, just so you know, that's why it says Game Castle top one through four. Uh, and this is from Hal Brady. So I played Hal at my locals on Tuesday. I randomly showed up to a locals because I was asking in this like DFW Discord. I was like, what stores have best of three and any kind of prize support? And they're like, this one. And I I asked that question, but all the other spikes in my area, I guess, saw the <laughs> saw the answer. So they all showed up. It was like all the best players that showed up to any of the other tournaments. And it was like very, very competitive. But I played Hal in the last round. Um to go 3-0, and I had not played Ruby Amethyst against Sapphire Amber before, and I quickly learned in game one that, holy shit, this deck is very, very good against me. So I, I made a huge blunder in game one. I sung a Friends on the Other Side with a Rafiki and promptly lost that game because Rapunzel was played on four. Mm -hmm. yep. But this deck is so freaking good against Ruby Amethyst. Let me tell you about... And how and Hal's also a very, very good player. Because things like You Have Forgotten Me... Uh, that, mm -hmm. that card is a pain to deal with, right? You might have yep. landed the mirror, but they can take out some super premium cards. Um, they can ink the Rapunzel if they need to. They have the infinite Hades loop. They have aggressive cards. You know, they have the Simba that can come down. So you know how you don't play, you never tap your Rafikis, you never tap your Maleficence, um, because of Rapunzel. Let me tell you about something else. So I play, um, Maui. 
the five cost Maui. I attack into something, clear it. My opponent, Hal, on the next turn goes Maximus to, uh, on your Maui, right? Take down some of your attack, then attack into your Maui, draw three cards with Rapunzel. And I was like, oh my wow. god, my freaking Maui's a liability now. <laughs> Smoking gun. Yeah, I actually was going to say this. I think that the Maximus is in this list. I've kind of seen them really catching on in popularity recently. And it's like, it's definitely one of my front runners for like the most underrespected card in, in like the amber color in general. Every time my opponent plays this like three cost Maximus, I audibly like groan. Mm. Like, is it, the, the, I look at my board and go, Matt, I, I just should have respected that, I guess. And like that, some of that's me. Some of that's me being terrible. But like when a card is always evoking a reaction from me every time it hits the table, you, I think you should pay attention to it. And I, I think it's kind of just under-respected in general. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the thought that was going through my mind when I because we played a three-game set pretty much the entire time was just like, Every time Hal was playing out onto board, um, I was just like, that is a lot to deal with. Like a lot of the play lines this deck was making against me were just a lot for my deck to deal with. They were asking me so many questions um, and I had to draw pretty well uh, to end up winning those games. And I, I think that this list is quite favored. So Hal actually commented on Twitter as well. Uh, sort of telling me about that city. He, he had built this deck to actually beat Ruby Amethyst and that he was sort of 10-0 in the matchup before playing against me. So overall 10-1, which is a pretty good record. If you if you have a bunch of Ruby Amethyst players at your locals or you're, you know, the person you play with plays Ruby Amethyst and you're like, what do I, do I have to play some super low to the ground aggro deck to beat them? I don't think so. I think that if you want to match them in a control, sort of a control matchup, this is a list that you can play. Imagine living in a world where ten one is a pretty good record. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'd snap your arm off for that record. That seems like a, a hell of a testament to me. If you're if you're ten and Brendan Patrick, that's a that's a decent record. I'll yeah. I'll I'll take. The Hades loop. So the Hades loop in Amber Steel is like very middling, right? Because they're just landing this character. You're not engaging in combat. It's questing for one. You're like, okay, it's a clock, and I can tempo them out of the clock by killing the Hades, make them replay it, and it's annoying, but. If your opponent lands two Eye of the Fates and then they can potentially infinite Hades loop you, you're like, oh, great. That is a, <laughs> like, that is three lore a turn on this clock that I can only out, I can dragon fire the Hades or something and just move tempo or I can attack into the Hades or move it. But the loop is just really tough to deal with. And your opponent has access to huge amounts of ink. So they can do things like double you have forgotten me. They can you have forgotten me. It's just like, yeah. it's so tough to deal with, man. Like this, this list is, I won, but it, I, I tell you right now, I will tell you, this list is really good against Ruby, Ruby Amethyst. I think this list is favored in Ruby Amethyst. What were you saying, Kamal, by the way? No, I was just going to say, yeah, uh, this is a similar version of the list that uh, Kim brought to the mm -hmm. tournament. And uh, it's actually quite funny. So she faced a lot of Ruby Amethyst. And she just hates that deck in general. She's like, oh my god, the players are so mean. They take so long to play. I'm like, because it's just a control deck, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, but believe it or not, like she, it wasn't exactly this version. She was doing more so. She had the Aurora package in it, right? Yeah. And she did. She actually got the double Aurora off, and it was like, okay, like an answer this, right? You need to be prepared, right? Mm -hmm. And I think she lost. I think she actually ended up losing. Went one one. She lost to the top deck. Be prepared. She was very, very, uh, very sad after that. But it was very much the same concept. And I think the key cards to include in this list is clearly the You Forgot Me. Somebody played. They must have had four of these in their Amber Steel list versus me. And oh my god, it just it just obliterated me. Yeah, it actually just obliterated yeah. me. If you think it's good versus control, you should see it versus aggro too. Like yeah, you have forgotten. Oh, gotta stop. Gotta, gotta stop sleeping on this card. It mm -hmm. is like just if if you're amber, 
at least think about it. It's mm-hmm. inkable. And this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier. Like, inkable silver bullets are just some of the best cards you can <laughs> play in Lorcana because it's it's either insane and does everything you want it to do or it goes in your ink roll. That's fine. And it's also the best named card in the game because it's it's named the way that you, you feel when your opponent plays it. You were like, you're right, I did. As I put my two Elsas into the graveyard. It's, 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 it's a horrible feeling. And the card, the card's fantastic. You yeah. know what? Someone, someone actually tried to sing it against me and I was like, no, 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 you can't. No, you're not allowed to aerial for that. That would be bad. Yeah. (laughs) But then they still went, oh, I'll just play it anyways. And still still did it. Like, you know, it's like, whatever. Mm. I want to give you all some tips if you're playing Ruby Amethyst against this list. uh, Some things you can do to help you Mm -hmm. you win. So um, I think you should be keeping things like Rafiki in hand um, to actually discard to you have forgotten me. The idea that you'll Mm -hmm. just play out your hand and you'll never get value out of it is uh, it's probably not going to happen because they they accelerate to that four. for uh, ink pretty quickly so they can cast it pretty early and they can play it on you late so if you're holding back be prepared so then to play bigger boards you're trying to deny stitch surfer etc um i think you should be holding back your really really non-impactful cards so like i'll hold back my second mirror i'll hold back um i'll hold back rafiki so like i'm literally holding cards to this card um and i'm just keeping in my hand for that reason because rafiki is not going to do anything on the battlefield it's just a liability versus rapunzel uh standard heuristics versus amber by the way Never let them get value of the, your, the Rapunzel. Yeah. Uh, if they Maximus your Maui and they get value out of it, I think that that I I'm I don't know if it's correct to like now Maui's a liability. Don't play it to clear stuff because Maui really really trades very effectively with most of the most of the board, like literally all of the board, and it's really good for that. So I think you just kind of let them get that one because they're running the the three Maximus and it's a two card combo, but. I think it's worth saying, like, maybe consider what your Maui's are taking out, mm-hmm. right? It's probably probably the way of putting it. Like, he can be a liability, but if he's trading into a Maleficent like, yeah, great. or whatever, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, that, that's a fine exchange. I can, I can live with you drawing cards from your Rapunzel if, if that's the exchange I got. If you look at your hand and go, you know what I'm going to do? Maui, that Stitch Lost Dog, I, prob- I, I probably wouldn't do that. That doesn't seem like it's anywhere near as, as worth doing. Yeah, so you deny Rapunzel's, um, and that's you should always be doing that versus Amber. Also, you can deny Stitch Rockstar. It's it's kind of tough. I don't think you should be dragon firing something, uh, you know, prior to their turn seven inefficiently in order to deny Stitch Rockstar. Stitch is one of those cards that. If you they mean have, Carefree Surfer, yeah? Yeah, Carefree Surfer. Yeah, sorry, Carefree Surfer. I think that they're just kind of kind of get value of it, but you can tempo them out of being able to play it. Sometimes it's like in the right scenarios, be very careful with that. I wouldn't if they had two stitches on board to going into seven ink. I wouldn't recommend you dragon fire a little stitch or a flounder in that case to potentially deny them out for card you don't know that they actually have. Um, the Maleficence in here, the three six, the quest for three, it's also very hard to deal with. It immediately demands removal. Like it's this is one of those things where like Maui's pretty good against it. Like I mean, it's still quest for three, so it's like this pseudo Cusco in a sense. But you need to be able to remove some of these. So the reason why Maui is like so Maui is a dual. Um, sort of a dual liability for you because I talked about Maximus, but Maui also is very bad in a Stitch Carefree Surfer. <laughs> Stitch Carefree Surfer is a 4-8, and they can run that into your Maui and the Rapunzel. Like, if they're drawing cards, like, if this card draws cards against you, you lose as Ruby Amethyst. As Ruby Amethyst, you have to be drawing a shitload of cards. Um, like, I think friends on the other side, playing it, by the way, casting it, not singing it, friends on the other side, singing, You can, but you can sing with your evasive characters is, mm-hmm. is super key to this matchup. Like, you need to be playing out that card, getting card advantage on them. If they start drawing cards off Rapunzel and off, and off a bunch of Stitch Carefree Surfers, I think they outvalue you easily and, and you lose pretty quickly. Like, it's a bad matchup for sure. Yeah. Unironically, I, last weekend, I, I played friends on the other side as a card more than I sung it. The, the amount of, like, amber matchups that 
I was playing into in general. And people just aren't willing to do it enough. Like, it's fine. Just play the card. Draw, draw yeah. your card. Be happy about it. You don't have to sing it. Um, but I, I didn't think I'd come out of the event being like, no, I just played that more than I than I sang it. But that's that's kind of where we are. Yeah, I think yeah. For the, for the most part, I actually probably just sang it with my vases with my vases more. Mm-hmm. So if I actually really if I really need to filter to then also play cards that were actually in my hand as well. But yeah, I I never said, oh, I want to sing this, and then I was like, what they're playing? They're gonna play Rapunzel, right? I did personally like uh, I I found myself in a situation where uh, I think I made the wrong play. It was a situation either if I have to, qu- I had a uh, one card that I found really. I don't know. Maybe it's just I don't like it that much anymore within Ruby Amethyst. It's Gaston, and it's probably just the matchups I had, right? Obviously, because into Amber Steel, yeah. it's just, you know, grab your swordable. Uh, I actually faced someone, I couldn't believe this. I faced someone playing Amber Steel who actually just ran uh, far the cannons. So Gaston was just instantly, like, gone. Uh, yeah. yeah, but basically, it's that situation of, okay, like, do I play around uh, Grab Your Sword? Do I play around Rapunzel? And I quickly found out, well, it's much better to just let your stuff die than actually let them draw cards, right? It's like, oh, maybe I got two extra lord. They get, what, two cards. It's a huge Do you know difference. what Gaston is in that matchup, Karma? It's mm. Ink. It's that's Ink. What, yeah, that's so, what it is. Mm. Don't, don't, don't play into Grab Your Swords. Don't play into Rapunzel. Put it in your Inkwell. That's, yeah. that's, that's, where, that's where Gaston goes. Gaston is a toolbox card. It's actually, it's insurance versus hyper-aggressive strategies that run bodyguards against you and also against Cusco. It's clear answer to Cusco. Yeah, it's clear, great. It's clear great answer to Cusco, Cheshire Cat. Yeah. So you are trading... You're trading up on both Cheshire Cat and Cusco, and Emerald's one of mm. your one of your bad matchups. Um, there was a player that top aided in Knoxville as well, who was running a more traditional version of Ruby Amethyst, and I saw their Twitter thread, and they said they said two dubious things, right? Where they said they said Sapphire Amber is a buy, and I think that they just not played against uh, a good pilot on that because it's definitely not a buy. And they also said that Gaston is a terrible card. Gaston is a great card. <laughs> if you run <laughs> if, you, if you run Brubes in your deck and you're telling me Gaston's a bad card, I don't know. I I I won't I, I won't hear that. Yeah, Gaston is a it, it, it clean clean answer to a lot of your most troublesome threats in Lorcana. It's very much what I was referring to earlier when I talk about inkable silver bullets. Like if they think of Gaston that way, it's it's my card that is in my deck for the Emerald matchups, because I want a, a, a nice, clean answer to Cusco, a nice, clean answer to Cheshire Cat. And if I start thinking of it as ink or my answer for the Emerald matchup, I start playing Gaston more correctly more often. Now, that that's a heuristic. You don't always assume that. It's not always just correct to snap the, the Gaston into your ink while and never play in other matchups. But if you start perceiving the card that way, you'll understand why cards are in decks more often. Like, G- Gaston is not a card for, for every matchup. Yeah. Card game fundamentals this- as well. Gaston frequently trades up. Gaston is a two cost. It's a four two. It'll frequently yeah, yeah. trade into your opponent's three. You kill cost a Cusco. That's amazing. Right? Yeah, yeah it feels, you feel like God. Like when you're just like, yeah, yeah, I held this in my hand. You played the Cusco like some kind of idiot, <laughs> and then and then and then it's extended my Gaston and, and answered you perfectly, and then and that feels great. And for every time that you know you keep it in the opener because and that's that's the thing as well. Like Gaston's a kind of perfect card to keep in your opening hand against like every because yeah. if they are if they are Emerald, it's like cool, I have the answer to clean you up. If you're not cool, well, it's going straight in my inkwell and I'm hitting my I'm hitting my info. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, mind- I, I want cards like that in my deck. For sure. Do you mind if we actually touch upon that Ruby Amethyst deck, Brendan, that would top that top aided? Because it has a lot of cards in it that are I wouldn't say in many lists, right? It has wardrobe, it has poison apple, which deals with uh like that 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 card actually seems not too bad. Like I I can't lie. In 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 a certain meta, it would be like okay, well it's gonna deal with at least Rapunzel, which is a bit weird, but sure. Uh, in the mirror match, it deals with what Elsa, doesn't it? I believe so. Yeah, this is from yeah, uh, the, the game. Yes, yes, the game cast list. Yeah, Josh Joshua Lindsay. Yeah, that's the one. 
Okay. I, yeah, I, I kind of agree. We, I, I joked with a few people at our event in Manchester over the weekend. I was like, you know what? Like, Apple's not terrible right now because there's so many things that just accidentally a princess. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not like you're playing it for a certain card, but it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, Rapunzel counts, Elsa it's, counts. These are all just like random cards. that It's top one, right? It's like, uh, three uh, yeah. Onyx, top, 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 top one. Yeah. yeah. So I don't have access to that to that list specifically, but I did take a look on it. So wardrobe is an anti-aggro card. Um, mm. I don't know about the poison apple, to be honest, because I think that your item slots are so tight, like they are incredibly tight already. Mm. Um, and I think that card is maybe a stretch. <laughs> um, but yeah, wardrobe is a totally fine card to play if you want to have an anti-aggro curve. I just, in my opinion, um, the Sergeant Tibbs or you know Archimedes, whatever you want, plus the Gaston is enough of insurance against aggressive decks that you'll be fine. Mm. Also, if you're running the evasive list, you just, on turns four and five, you're just naturally playing the board. And if we're talking about normal low to the ground aggro lists that are running things that can die to Pongo and Goofy, uh, I just, I think that, if you wanted, if you, if you, if I was walking up to a tournament, and I was like, okay, 80% of this tournament, 70, 50% of this tournament is going to be hyper aggro, like go wide, um, you know, emerald amethyst or wheel steel, whatever. Yeah. I might consider the wardrobes. I think it's a good card versus aggressive mm. decks. Um, yeah. Like the go wide ones. There's a list I want to talk to you guys about here. Yep. Um, which is actually a combination I don't think I've seen in Morcana yet, which is. Goes about to go to the same necklace, actually. Yeah, I think I'm looking at it as well. Yeah, yeah. so Howling Mines, why don't you? What does this deck do? Explain it to us. What does it do better than the same deck? We're looking at this this Robert Ruby Amber deck. Yeah, Robert Breaks list. I yeah. love this deck. I think this is like it's just so beautiful. <laughs> it combines so many things that other decks are doing well and kind of mashing them together. Um, so we have those kind of reasonable early starts we kind of alluded to before. Like I kind of love the ability to be like great with uh, it's like a stitch rockstar deck if you take a look at the kind of count we're looking at on ones and twos we are a very efficient rockstar deck at our core but we're also built that, so that we can sh like shift early on to aladdins which is incredible something other people can't do we have access to like incredible top end like we're, we're somehow still a four maleficent deck mm -hmm. even though we're playing like stitch lost dog which is such a, a ridiculous balance to me as well for me this deck is like very much just playing a pile of good cards that have like accidental synergy. Like you look at this deck and nothing is bad, right? These are all cards we're kind of seeing everywhere else in other shells. You get to play, you have forgotten me. Um, and like all these kind of cards we've already alluded to, but I, I tell you what I'm not doing playing around a be prepared out of a stitch lost dog deck. Like absolutely not. Like I'm, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm getting ruined by that thing when it comes down. Um, I, I really like just kind of, in concept what this deck is doing all these bodies are really well sized the shield seems like it's great with the aladdins and a few other things um i feel like you kind of have a bit of a like best of both worlds scenario where you've got reasonably static stuff early you're good into the aggro decks and your late game is just a pile of carnivage thanks to both of the stitches both of which kind of fit pretty well into into your shell um this is one i've kind of been jamming a small amount of games with myself on pixelborn since these deck lists came out and i think i still have a lot to learn about what it's doing mm -hmm. but you catch so many people off guard like mm -hmm. no no one really knows how to play around what you're up to like you'll, you'll get off to an aggressive start and then you'll you have forgotten me them and they'll be out of resources and you'll be prepared to board away and then just go cool rock star spin the wheel and like you just run away with the game and then yeah, sometimes they won't want to race resources on your aladdins and stuff because they've already got on value and carefree surface starts drawing cards and like there's just like very few ways to win if that makes sense yeah you're never gonna have a bad hand necessarily with this deck either because there's only what six 
uninkables, if I'm not mistaken, in it. Like everything is very much inkable, right? It's just the dragon fire and the be prepared, right? So yeah, everything. That, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I'm very intrigued to try this uh, this deck out. And then the you forgotten me against. Like if you face a ruby amethyst, you mm. have that as an advantage over, and that's like really interesting, right? Like I super, think... super interesting. To, to be honest, yeah. To be fully honest, I think this gets waxed by Ruby Amethyst. Like, I think that Ruby Amethyst would be very, very favored into this deck because I mean, Stitch Rockstar is pretty much the only thing that you're doing that is slightly good against Ruby Amethyst. Everything else is bad. So, like, high end Mickey here is a bad card versus Ruby Amethyst because mm. it gets it gets traded up by Dragonfire and pretty much everything in that deck. Um, I just don't think like shifting Aladdin very bad against Ruby Amethyst. Like, a lot of this stuff would be tough. I think it's Ruby Amethyst overall. Though it's just a fundamental mid range deck, though. Like, uh, Shift Aladdin is good against aggro decks. I mean, there's mm. you've you forgotten me. I think it's good against Ruby Amethyst if you're playing another control deck, you can hold it back, you can use it at key points when you know they're getting rid of bad cards. But when you're going, hey, I'm just curving out, right? I'm playing one ink a turn, I'm not ramping at all. And my turn four is just, you have forgotten me. That's pretty middling, to be honest. Like, Ruby Amethyst doesn't die to that. Ruby Amethyst dies to like double, you have forgotten me. Or we're on turn mm. eight, and I know you're holding back um, a be prepared plus an Elsa because I'm about to mm. commit to board, and now I, you have forgotten me. And like, you have to have insurance against that. You have forgotten me on curve on turn four shouldn't most cases should not derail ruby amethyst player into a loss no no this this deck to me i look at and this is a deck that was built by someone who was expecting a room to be full of like emerald steel emerald amethyst um maybe maybe amber steel i can definitely see this deck having a good matchup into amber steel as well and like if you if you think the room is those decks and you you have an idea of the local meta game obviously i, I have no idea um, what the metagame is like out here uh, in general. Maybe they just kind of know each other. There's yeah, obviously, as we can see, uh, Emerald Amethyst like won the event. Um, you know, Sapphire Emerald was in there on the split. So at the end of the day, if you know your local metagame is very heavy on these Emerald shells, this looks like the kind of deck I would be interested in picking up and teaching Emerald a lesson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I agree with you there. It's also cool to see a list like this top eight because this is a color combination that you almost never see. And it's yeah. it's funny that all the color combinations are so playable. Like playable is a playable is a funny word because I'm not sure like where that what that word means to you and like what kind of bar I'm setting. But uh, playable for me is like a, it's a pretty high it's a high praise. Like I think that every color combination in uh, Lorcana is pretty dang good like you can actually do well with it do i think that a meta would be you know super diverse and represent every single color combination if we went to like a high-end tournament you know ten thousand dollars or something like that no i think that there would be some clear winners but if you're like hey i love i love lacana i want to play at my locals i want to play versus my friends i want to maybe go enter a tournament here and there i think you legitimately play anything and that that's mm -hmm. incredible I think that's kind of the magic of what the, the kind of like ink combination lets you do, right? There's there's, a, there's something you can do in every ink combination that no other deck in the game is capable of doing because they don't have access to the one-two combo that you do. Uh, one of my one of my close friends in real life is is a fan of brewing with uh, ruby steel, and I was like, that's not a combination I see very often. Like, what what's the what's the rationale behind that? And we played two games, and he shield of virtue this giant tink and hit me with it again, and I went, there it is. Yeah. That's the one thing that you're allowed to do in Ruby Steel that no other ink combination in the game can do. And that's kind of the beautiful part of seeing decks like this succeed is you get to sit there and go, okay, what's the what's the combination here that no one else is allowed that really makes this kind of shine? And that's that's one of the best parts of it. Yeah, an aggro deck trying to play the board against Ruby Steel would have probably a hard time with them having access to sort of agnostic board clues in the form of Be Prepared on turn seven. But prior to that, they've access to Grab Your Swords, they've access to Big Tink, Shift Tink. Like they are completely... 
with Aladdin, like what what are you supposed to do in the face of all of those tools? You know? Yeah, I actually saw someone playing. I was it was at this tournament as well. Someone playing Ruby Sapphire, which was quite interesting. So you're kind of just ramp, yeah, you're just ramping out big stuff. Which, like you said, it's it's really cool that. I, I do agree. You can kind of put something together with nearly every color combination and feel like it's going to do okay for the most part. Like you'll play you'll play a matchup with someone and yeah, some, some games you get absolutely demolished, but then some games you might actually okay, this was like a, a decent game, right? It's kind of close. I think arguably more importantly, it doesn't just feel like you're playing a worse version of a different combination. And that's something mm. that's really easy to fall into the hole of. It's like, oh wow, I'm I'm playing Ruby Amber, and it's like, well, that's just worse amber steel. It's like no, this this deck is doing something different. It has mm -hmm. access to different tools, and that that's kind of I think what's truly important to say. Because if we were like, yeah, Ruby Ruby Amber's playable, but it's just what you play if you don't own giant tanks, then that's a much worse situation to be in than mm -hmm. I've made a choice because of X, Y, and Z, which is where I think we actually are. Mm -hmm. All right, next up is a Ruby Amethyst from Otis Turner. I picked this out because this is pretty close to uh, my list. I mean. It pretty much is my list and they also were nice enough to comment on last week's podcast talking about the tournament they got second in the tournament in knoxville and they said mad props to the evasive package took a near identical list to knoxville 2k and got second it was 80 ish people seven rounds and we did not start until noon so everyone agreed to split the top eight classic lorcana <laughs> 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 honestly it was it was best for me i thought it was going to start at 10 a.m and there's four hour drive one way when 502 502 so five wins zero losses two draws draws were not intentional one missed by a my part the other was a ruby amethyst mirror deck is amazing and it puts any deck running amber on tilt when you play around the rapunzels yeah. uh, so this deck has some key changes um one is the single pocket watches which is a change i'm considering making it has also gone down in rafikis um so mm -hmm. it's playing two rafikis and because of that has added the additional elsa um, which I think is totally reasonable. I like to have Rafiki. I think Rafiki can help you out. Like if we talk about Ruby Amethyst's bad matchups, I think Rafiki can be pretty critical in winning some of this. But Rafiki is a lot of times it's a really bad card. Like it's a really bad card. Because um, like even in the mirror, like Rafiki can be such a liability. Like maybe you can clear the Maleficent your opponent decided to sing with and like that's fine, but they didn't care about that card anyway. And the Rafiki in the late game is like you just literally can't play that card because they can run Aladdin yeah. into it and they can maybe do the Elsa plus Aladdin. You know, we talk about 19 Inc., Elsa, Aladdin, Shield, Pocket Watch. But what really happens most of the time is it's Aladdin on seven, and then you just have to be like, oh shit, they probably have the Elsa on eight. And if you have any board mm -hmm. presence, yep. your board presence is now a liability. Um, but yeah, I think that I, yeah, this is, I really enjoyed playing this list so far. Um, and I think it's super, super well positioned. I know that, you know, looking outside, looking in, if you're looking at this, you're a BM this player, probably your first first inclination is going to be very skeptical because you're like, why would I play Goofies and two Jetsons? Jetson, definitely 50, 59th, 60th card for sure. Um, but I promise, just try the evasive package. And yeah, it is good. You it will, is good. You should actually roll most of the mirrors. Like if the, the key, it's... It's card game fundamentals when it comes to winning or being this mirror. You need to out two for one your opponent, but to give yourself the opportunity to be the aggressor and with you having 10 evasive characters, not only is Pongo's all Pongo is a very is a card that's run in pretty much every ruby in this list. Jetson will clear that. But 10 evasive characters, like you are really taxing your opponent's removal to the extent that they just will not be able to remove some of it. But like if you look at their removal and you're like, oh well, they have all these Maleficent, they have all these dragon fires, and all these be prepared. It's like, okay, they have Technically, they have two extra removal on top of like your 10 characters. They have 12 removal, you have 10 characters. 
But Maleficent's are 9 ink. You're playing at 4 ink and 5 ink with these evasive characters. And they have to find all of the dragon fires. They have to find mm-hmm. all of the be prepared. It's like, it is a huge ask. And I will... The game doesn't necessarily end before we get to turn 9. But it gets so close to the end that it's basically over. Because if I'm on 15 ink in the mirror and you used all your removal to try to remove these evasive characters trying to stabilize like in the late game i'm just going to land an ursula and you're just not going to have the removal and the ursula will just win the game like or like you often will close out with a card like that i i would say even to folks that are maybe listening that are more of a ruby amethyst traditionalist like myself and you prefer to play up slightly on cards and stuff like that consider playing the goofies and stuff over your queens and these other cards that are becoming less impactful in the mirrors and things like that i, I think for the most part having access to them uh it, it gives you it gives you really good game into people that are on 60 cards like evasives and you, you can play back and still have that ability to you uh, in terms of this list from Aldis, yeah, I mean, as, as you say, it's very close to, to what you're up to. Uh, I don't mind cutting back on Rafiki right now. I have been like getting a little less and less impressed with the card as we go on. Uh, you won't catch me dead not playing a pocket watch. I, I, lo- I love I love playing my Aladdins on eight and uh, and just immediately rushing them in as and where possible. Um, I love the fourth Elsa. I've been been on four myself, but admittedly, I've been on more cards, so it makes sense that I have the space to do that. Uh, the three dragons fire makes me feel a li- little uneasy though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not it's not a hundred percent okay with that. I, I, I yeah, I, I get it. I I understand. But when we're like, oh, I need to find all my dragons fires to not die to evasive in the mirror. I've got a dragons fire. Does doesn't fill me with the most confidence. That's maybe the the one thing I look at and go, eh, maybe not. But otherwise, the list looks super clean, and you can you can see why it performed the way that it did. So the um the methodology behind cutting the dragon fire is. Uh, this list, I think that you can run the fourth, you'll be totally fine, but you need to cut an uninkable. Uh, the difference between 22 and 21 uninkable is pretty reasonable in terms of getting seven ink by turn seven. Um, so I think you want to be closer to that 21 unless you like to spin the dice, but already with this deck, you're just hard turbo mulliganing for inkables. Like that is just what mm-hmm. you do. And that adds quite a bit of variance because, you know, other decks will mulligan for key cards and mulligan for curves. You're just like, give me inkables. <laughs> um, this is this is just numbers here, right? We've come down on the Rafiki, we've gone up on the Elsa, the Dragon's Fire. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think for me, I may be a little more inclined to lean towards the fourth Dragon Fire before I lean towards the fourth Elsa if I'm playing for Ursula as well. Um, but we're getting to like real niche corner case like decisions at that point, and I think all around the deck just looks pretty good. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts on Ursula? I think Ursula Ursula is a card that is not being played in every list. It is not being played in the quantity of all this list, and it's a card that didn't get a lot of respect early on. How do you feel about Ursula? I love it. I think the guy's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. Uh, I've been playing other other decks with it. I think um, something that we probably need to allude to. I've had this discussion with a few people. Is that if you if you want to be a four Ursula Ruby Amethyst deck, I think you probably aren't supposed to play Aladdin Street Rat, um, or at least some smaller amount. I found the more that people are kind of learning how the matchups play, that if you if you Street Rat your opponent's lore away, you turn your own Ursulas off by accident. Which because no, no one is ever like having. You're either behind on board to all the evasives and they're aggressively questing, or they leave themselves deliberately on like one law where it's like, mm-hmm. I, I, there was no threat, I might as well quest in a spot like this. Uh, and, and accidentally turning off your third copy of Ursula because your opponent hasn't been aggressively questing against you in the more traditionally like hyper control versions of the mirror match is like a huge liability. So if, if you think it's correct to play four copies of the card, I would be. I'm more interested in exploring these. Like, uh, I know some people have been playing, playing like playing Elsa Snow Queen and like other inkable threes and stuff like that. Um, they're probably cards I would consider over over the street rat if that's if that's where you were. But I agree, the card is massively underplayed, and I think more amethyst decks in general should be considering whether they have the ability to play up to Ursula. Mm. I uh, 
I have a hot take off the back of that. I actually think that um, Aladdin Street Rat and the the three cost Elsa are both bad cards, and that the last thing you want to be doing in the in the hyper control mirror is shifting because you just two for one your opponent. Like you're, you set yourself up to get two for one, and your opponent would cheat. Like just, I mean, they would cheer at the opportunity to dragon fire an Elsa that was shifted or dragon fire an Aladdin that was shifted. Agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't think you want to be shifting in those matchups. I don't hate playing Aladdin Street Rat if you want to be better into the more aggressive decks in the room. I think it's a defendable card uh, to be able to shift early there, even knock a couple of law points off your opponent early if that's what you're putting in the deck for. Um, I just think if you want to be a four uh, sort of deck, there's there's a consideration for how much you want to concede to playing the Aladdins because they, they are... A, it's an old deck building mythology like kind of tip for other card games. You're allowed to build nombos into your deck. That's okay. You just need to be consciously aware of them. Um, so you should be aggressively inking those Aladdins if you are prioritizing Ursula in that matchup. You should be maybe playing less Ursulas if you're playing four Aladdins and playing them very often. That's that's kind of the... Yeah, I do agree that Aladdin, uh, Aladdin Street Race shifts Aladdin is uh, can be critical in winning some hyper-aggressive matchups because that is one of the toughest cards for them to deal with. Um, and you do give up some equity by not having access to shift Aladdin against those like heavy, aggressive, go-wide decks. Um, what... What are your thoughts on the little Elsas, though? Is that a card you play? For me, for me, uh, I, I've tried Elsa Snow Queen a few times, and it's mostly been a case of I don't want Aladdin Street Rat, but I want an Inkable Three, and we're limited in like options in terms of what you can play in that spot right now, um, because you do want to make sure that if you're playing less Rafikis, you still have cards that can theoretically sing friends on the other side and stuff like this. I don't think it's a good card. Um, I think it is like arguably somewhat reasonable in the mirrors alone sometimes because having a small exert on tap can be relevant mm. um so to, to kind of have those aladdin lines without having to extend an elsa spirit of winter if you're trying to save them for broom loops towards the end of the game if you're going that long or if you want to save them for for more pivotal circumstances having the effect on tap can be nice but i i don't think the card is actually good i think we just lack options for inkable threes if you specifically don't want the three rep mm -hmm. okay Sounds good. All right, the last list I'm probably going to bring up here, um, if I can find it, it's just going to be an aggro list, ideally the list that won. Let's see if I have it from Knoxville. And yeah, I think this is it, uh, Rhett Mulcher, because... We don't even get to talk about the, the, the Musketeers deck. Disgusting. Uh, if you want to, I just, <laughs> want, I just want to put it on people's radar because I think this is one of the best decks in the game right now. Um, yeah, I mean, so Steadfast did a video on a list. I don't know if it's this list or a list similar to this, but sort of repopularized uh, Amethyst Emerald Aggro. Basically, it's an aggro deck that has access to card draw, so you're not as you're not as uh, sort of hinged on getting the right cards in your initial draw, and you don't run out of steam as fast. Um, I think you you sacrifice some explosiveness for that. Um, I haven't played the list myself. It did win this tournament, I believe. I think that was what that comment said. So that's a testament in and of itself. Uh, good list. What are y'all's experience with this? I have faced lists like this before, and my lord, they just say, they don't have to think about it, they just quest. They literally just quest, 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 race you as fast as they can, and I've been absolutely obliterated by lists like this. What about yourself, Ellen? I love this deck, and I think I'm really kind of glad to see it picking up popularity and people kind of realizing the power behind it again, because... This is what you would traditionally call a tempo deck in other card games in the way that it's, it's structured. Now, tempo can mean whatever you want it to mean, because that's kind of the, the nature of, of everyone throwing it around. But here I'm kind of referring to it as a sense of you're looking for board control. You're kind of jockeying for a position repeatedly to, to be able to decide who is ahead in the race of law. 
And that's what this deck is designed to do. When you kind of look at the, the kind of tools you have available to you, you're playing a ton of evasive characters that your opponent doesn't have the choice to interact with. Tons of characters that quest for large amounts and then points of interaction. We're on three Genie. We're on three Mother Knows Best. We're on the single copy of Befuddle because those are the cards that let me decide who is winning the race and who who currently has control over things. So if we're talking about like the Amber Sapphire decks and stuff like that, right? If I'm playing to the board with this deck, I go Flynn into a three, into a hands, and you go, cool, here's a Maleficent, so I can start challenging back. Oh, bounce the Maleficent, quest for sixth law. You've lost the game. The game is over. There is no way you're ever catching back up in time before that, that can happen. And that's where this deck really shines, because you have access to effects like Genie. Uh, John Silver lets you kind of turn off your opponent's uh, plans in the same way. Uh, Mother Knows Best. Even Jasper, that kind of shut down your opponent's questing potential. You are limiting their ability to race you. You aren't just slamming points and quest, 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 quest. Your cards quest really well, but you stop your opponent. When your opponent's like questing so aggressively... Often your option on a mid-range deck is to quest back. You can't waste time challenging their stuff if they've got such like large amounts of willpower. You need to put your own stuff on the board and quest as aggressively to try and catch back up. And these tempo effects are what stops this deck from being beaten by other people who are interested in questing aggressively. You get to just push those cards away and keep questing in the meantime, meaning that you're always going to have the faster clock. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think... Uh... I do think the deck is well positioned as well. I think the evasive package was does does do a little bit better because it turns off those Tinkerbells and turns off those Pascals, which can be pretty pesky mm. for the other deck. Pascal is like one of the most underrated one cost cards in Locana, and it should it shouldn't be. People know how good it is, but mm-hmm. if you're not playing Steel, like it just it's it's the same thing we said with Cusco earlier on, right? Your opponent starts the game on like well, you you start the game on like you know twelve law or whatever. Like it's 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 the same kind of problem. You you are guaranteed a certain amount of law from the card being in your deck, and mm-hmm. uh, and it's inkable, which is just, just great. Yeah. All right, Howling Minds. Both you and I, and Kala, you as well, have played a lot of card games. Um, mm-hmm. And I know Howling Minds, you share my sentiment with Lorcana being one of the best, or Lacan Chapter One being one of the best constructed formats you've ever played. You know, very diverse, very dynamic, in flux, um, still asking questions despite the small card pool. How do you feel about set two? Do you think that set two will bode for a better game, or do you think, or are you more worried about set two? At this, this is point? Brendan's worry. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're asking every guest this. You're like, oh my god, what? I'm so scared for set two. Yeah. <laughs> so, how do I phrase this? I I wouldn't say I'm necessarily scared for set two, but I understand the concerns. Um, there is a natural inclination with card games to be concerned about power creep, right? The company behind the game fundamentally is a business. They have to sell you something. And if they're not printing cards that are better and more powerful and more unique and more interactive than the ones before it, you don't buy their new products because you're already satisfied with the ones that you have. And there's a reason why... Things that are built to last aren't manufactured anymore. Everyone needs to function as a business model of selling you the newest, hippest thing, the newest, coolest thing. There's always going to be some extent of power creep. And I am I am worried that eventually we get to a point where it's like, oh, you want to build Ruby Amethyst? Well, pull out your wallet. There's 24 legendaries in that deck because we're just slamming the best, most efficient cards in those colors in at every point because they're better than any common and I think my fears for that would be way more inflated if cards like Maleficent and Friends on the Other Side and things like this didn't exist already, where we've got good examples of linchpin commons that should be staples for the rest of time. Um, I think it's a valid concern. I think it's a very valid fear. And 
Ravensburger are going to have to be very careful with how quickly they accelerate the power behind the game. Um, but I think we have at least a few sets in us, at the very least, before we have any rational concern about being uh, power crept out. Mm. I think part of my worry comes from, I think that Lorcana, the Lorcana experience and the good experience, at least in my opinion, comes from the, the interaction. It's funny because the rules are fundamentally uninteractive, right? Uh, asymmetric turns, you fully play your turn, your opponent fully plays their turn. But Lorcana is a game that is rife with interaction. It's full of it. I mean, it is one of the most interactive games I've played. I think that if there was, if they introduced cards that made decks that just played to the board, that had evasion, that just quested and tried to get a 20 as fast as possible, that the game might not be as enjoyable. I think the game actually hinges off that back and forth. That, and I do think that games in general hinge off a back and forth between players. Like that is what makes games fun. Maybe not for magic players because magic players love, love cards that prevent that. Uh, but. You know, that's that's really what I'm worried about is that, you know, th there's some decks that are like that, like the just-in-time decks. Like, if that was the premier, the best deck, and you know, there wasn't much counterplay and there wasn't a deck that really hosed that deck, I think that Lorcana would be a much less uh, fulfilling game for me. Maybe it's be maybe maybe my love for Lorcana comes from, you know, one of the best decks, and in my opinion, the best deck right now, being a a fantastic expression of what control is in a card game. Like Ruby Amethyst is probably one of the best, like not in terms of power level, but one of the best just examples of like, this is control in a card. Yes. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. It's great. Phenomenal. Um, but yeah. I think for me, um, the key to a healthy meta game is going to be watching that kind of, example remain but having a meta game that's in flux lokan is doing a really good job right now at having a, a premier example of a control deck a premier example of an aggressive deck a premier example of a mid-range deck we look at amber steel it, it's very much in the middle you know emerald amethysts are aggressively slanted and of course as you say ruby amethyst is a fantastic control deck now these don't always have to be the best decks because the, you know people will find that to be a somewhat polarizing experience we all enjoy different things in card games some people like to be able to have big massive combo turns that deal 30 you know 30 damage in other card games uh, and so on and so forth like uh, like brendan himself here for example but if those are good for uh, exceptionally prolonged period people that don't enjoy that step away from the games so there needs to be a rotation things need to move and flow so i think as long as we can keep ourselves in a position where ruby amethyst exists uh amber steel exists emerald amethyst exists but they're not always the best deck they are viable options we're going to be in a really good space and that's why you look forward to seeing them preserve. If we can preserve the integrity of what those decks are doing and still feel like every color combination is a valid option, we're going to be in good hands. Do you know if the, the if Ravensburger has put out an official statement on whether Lorcana will be a sort of block rotating game or in a, or if they're shooting for like in a turtle card game off the bat? Our, our current understanding is that it is a turtle, um, is, is the, the statement that's been made, but, uh, well, obviously, we're in a position where we have released one set, and uh, I'm going to put the little asterisk subject to change down at the bottom of that, because um, any company with common sense can can want to make a, an eternal game, and then if things get out of hand and power crept the balls and cards need to go, you can make the decision to, to step away, as long as you do it soon enough so that you don't miff off all your investors. Yeah, I feel like in a... Howling Minds and I both play an eternal card game, and I think in an eternal card game... Um, commitment or sort of philosophy it comes with a lot of baggage that starts to rack up really really quickly and really in heavily limits design uh lacan is a game that 
they could reasonably design cards outside of the sort of normal power level paradigm like magic has done where there are cards that are just more powerful than others like flesh and blood is a game that is eternal but they literally can't it's all based off some sort of mathematical equation and if you if you ever exceeded that by any reasonable point the cards are just absolutely broken um i i hope that lorcana is a game that maybe embraces multiple formats and i do think that the rotating format is more congruent with a business philosophy like you talked about like it does maybe sell more packs but i'm telling you completely agnostic of the business sense of the money sense of any of that i think that rotating games allow for more interesting design and a better play experience overall maybe you've been burnt by magic playing standard or something like that but my experience so far within a turtle card game is that i believe that the rotate the rotation allows for better design and it, it makes for a more fun experience that being said it comes with a lot of baggage in terms of yeah, from where i'm sitting I, I mostly agree with that statement i just think there needs to be viable options for all of your players i think uh, having a solely rotating game is is not a good mythos um I, I want to be in an environment where Carwood turns around and goes, you know what? I really enjoyed that Ruby Amethyst deck I played when Lorcana first began. I, I loved every part of it. Um, so you've rotated. I can't play with those cards anymore. I own them all. What am I supposed to do with them? And you can turn around and go, hey, here's this other format you can play where it's like first chapter only. And if you if that's the gameplay experience you want for the rest of the time, you want to compete in that format, go ahead. Your cards are still legal over there. You can still enjoy that experience that we're all loving right now. Um, that exists. And then there's some format that exists where everything is legal and some format that exists where only the most recent two years of cards are legal. That That's, in my opinion, how you do that. Not just, yeah, uh, we rotate cards in two years. And after those two years, everything you own is worthless mm. um, because that's, that's not how you maintain customer confidence or let people kind of continue to enjoy the cards they've been enjoying and maybe don't want to put down. Yeah, that's where it kind of differs, right? Is everything you said there, Howling, uh, perfectly aligns with everything that Hearthstone does, right? So Hearthstone has the, I believe it's the whole year, maybe it's the two years. They have Wild, which has everything. And then they have Classic, which is just all of the first set, basically. Um, but the difference with a digital card game in comparison with a physical card game is, oh, I have these old cards. I can disenchant my old cards to get new cards. Can you sell your two cent common cards for like, you know, for all of these new cards? No, not really, unless you have a lot of them, right? So uh, I, I do agree with that concept. I, th I think in the future, if... I, I just want... Yeah, I think more formats in general is better if they start to find trouble with it being in Eternal and this this is broken, that's broken. Oh, you just can never use these cards again. I think it's better because it just pleases a larger player base and just doesn't force someone to say, oh, well, that's it. I love playing this deck. I'm not playing this game ever again, right? It allows players to, to, to continue to, to iterate and, and try new things or, or at least play with the cards that they like to play with, so... Hopefully they decide to go down that route if it comes to that and, and not just absolutely like just like ban cards. Classic was a fantastic example, as you say. Yeah. It's exactly the kind of mythos that I have in mind personally, because we're all sitting here right now talking about how diverse this format, how incredible it is and how, and, and how fantastic. And we might find that unfortunately in a few months, that isn't the case anymore. That's card games. Those, mm. those be the breaks. That's how it goes. It will be nice if there is a world where we can go, well, I want to compete, but I want to play the first chapter format. I had a really good time there. It was everything I enjoy about a card game, and you can you can embody that. And we're seeing a lot of that success in other card games. There is, like, Yu-Gi-Oh! at the moment has a very popular format called Edison that is a format from 2012. Um, it is literally the format that was played back in 2012 because yeah. people loved it so much. It seemed to be the pinnacle of what the game was, mm -hmm. and it's been so popular that side events are often outselling main events because people are having a much better time playing that format than they are modern Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah. It's not the only card game that's doing that. Pretty there are other games. 
pre-modern, the same thing. Exactly. So you're looking at things from you know, back in the, the 90s because that's the, the kind of environment people miss and are nostalgic for and they enjoy. There's, a, there's kind of already a, a precedent for these formats at this point. I think it's definitely a well an inkwell, if you will, that's worth tapping into um, because people people fall in love with a certain feeling, a certain experience, a certain format, and being able to recapture that means you you keep more players than you inevitably lose from going, this game isn't what I enjoy anymore, I'll go somewhere else. I want to see uh, Brendan play the just the first set format 10 years from now, just win another tournament with like this exact Ruby Amethyst list. It would be the best. It, it, like, it'd, probably be be it'd probably be bad because like what happens, like... It, it's funny because we, I feel like I put a lot of thought into uh, the first set and I played a lot of games and I've talked to a lot of good players, but I promise you that everybody who says anything, including me right now, is still kind of bad. Like there will be a, cogn- a cognitive rising of all of Larkana players and we will look back in months and years and be like, holy shit. We played those cards. We knew nothing. Yeah, exactly. And like, I can't wait until me and Kawa are competing in, in the world's final, and Brendan's winning the the classic format side event because he played the thirteenth elusive, and and his opponent didn't. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be a great time. I look forward to it. I keep uh, I keep extending past my notes here, but these these questions that keep coming in. I think this is the last one. How like, what are your thoughts on limited and Larkana, both sealed and uh, in draft? So I have very uh, limited. Uh, experience with limited so far in in Lorcana, unfortunately. But I'm a massive like advocate of limited in other card games I've played. I think it's a very important route to getting new players into the game because there's a way you can just kind of enter, pick it up without having any previous obligation. You don't have to own any cards, any previous understanding, anything like that. Uh, and it also really does test like card game fundamentals. If you you have a lot of players who, myself included, they like to really kind of test their skill level from limited because your card evaluation abilities kind of really get to shine um, because you need to understand the fundamentals of the game better. You need to understand what numbers are important, what's good, what's bad on a, a low power vacuum level, which doesn't always come across in constructed. Um, I would like to have the ability to draft more uh, Lorcana and play more sealed. Unfortunately, this has not been a, a massive amount of product available to me or people available to me to do so. Um, but I think cultivating a limited experience is going to be very important for the future of Lorcana, and I really hope they prioritize it. Yeah, I think the current iteration kind of sucks where they were like, it just feels ad hoc, you know, it's just like, oh, you can play any color. It's like, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I feel like they just like, they threw it on at the end after design, it wasn't intentional. But I think that the designers at Ravensburger, maybe, you know, they they didn't appreciate how important limited can be to selling product because it is... Even outside of product selling, that's what it feels like to me. I think I think they got quite late into development and everyone went, have you thought about Limited? And they went, no, why would we do that? And they went, well, here's all the reasons why you should do that. And they went, ah, oh, shit, we should probably think about that. And kind of tried to make some last minute adjustments to make it work for the first day. It feels a bit fumbly, a bit stuck together, a bit stuck on with paste and glue. Um, and we'll see refinement on that over time. At least that's my my hope. Because if we don't, people probably aren't going to be particularly interested in the current iterations of, of Limited of Lorcana. And I think that'll be a huge failing on, on the game's part. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. But I think that the I think Ravensburger might turn around when when possible because limited is limited is a big part of card games, especially card games selling cards. To be honest, like selling booster boxes and stuff. Because if there's no limited, like you're usually actively making a bad decision by not buying singles. But <laughs> to put this in a pol- in a polite way, and Carwin knows this because he was privy to the same conversation in Manchester. Uh, I, I'm good friends with someone who is is in communications with the team at Ravensburger behind the game, and uh, and a lot of their original marketing pitches, a lot of their original uh, 
meetings when the game was first being cultivated. And to put it bluntly, they didn't think the game was going to be successful. Um, they, they, they hired far too small meeting rooms that were, were over flooded by people that when they originally came to consultations, they were like, look, we're hoping to be about half as successful as MTG. And everyone turned around and went, you're Disney. What do you mean? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there is, there is no chance that you're going to be half as successful. You have one of the largest IPs in the world. Um, what are you talking about? Yeah. And I think they've very quickly learned from, you know, underprinting product and all these kind of situations we find ourselves in. They were like, oh no, hang on. We yeah. have something here. No let's OP. let's hurry up with the polish. The OP wasn't ready. Limited was a bit tacked on. We haven't got enough cards. Everyone wants our stuff. What do we do? And I think they're very quickly going to have to pull the rug out and be like, "Oh, we are the big boys now," and, and figure out figure out everything at a kind of alarming pace. Because beforehand, they kind of sat there and went, "No, we're hoping it doesn't suck." And get come on, guys, you you, you are Disney. You generate sixty billion dollars of revenue every year. Did you really think this yeah. game wasn't going to be some kind of commercial success? To be fair, it did look like it was going to suck, but it, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. I would love to talk to one of the develop. I would love to talk to the developers. They're developers. Like uh, the set design, I think the set design is like pretty. They they were like went with this like vanilla design, but then they added in like cards like uh, you know um, a whole new world. So like Wheel of Fortune, they added them like all these crazy cards. And but the developers, man, they did such a good job. They did such a good job. Like the game is so freaking balanced. Um, I would love to talk to a developer from Ravensburger and talk about that process. Agree though, it, it didn't matter if the game was good. It's got Disney's name slapped on it. People would have bought it for the art. They would, they, have, bought they for would the, have bought it. Those people would have bought it. Those people are Timmy's and they wouldn't have bought it forever, I don't think. Like you can only Ponzi a game up that hard if the gameplay does sucks. Like I I think, right? Maybe we break I, I, out of the paradigm. Normally, but Disney's the exception, I think. People people buy all kinds of statues and stickers and, and notebooks. If it's got their favorite character on it, it's going to sell. And at least that's where from where I'm sitting. I, I, I would kind of look to look at it from the start. But if there's ever a game that was going to release that is just going to be successful, regardless of whether the game is good, bad, ugly, miserable, somewhere in the middle... It, it was it was this one. I think it's metrics of success, right? Like there's a certain level of success they would have achieved, but nothing close to where they are right now. Like where they are right now, I think is partly because they're Disney, but largely because the game is actually really good. It, you have you have people who are established in other card games, like um, content creators, people who have reached to other card game players that are coming out on Twitter, on their on their channels, on anything. They're saying this game is good, and all the people who looked at the game were like, "Oh, there's vanilla tutus. This game sucks ass." And it's a money grab they're like okay i'll give it a shot and they try it and now it's their favorite card game it's crazy and i think that that's huge to their success like did i think i'd be sitting here on a little card right now like a, a few months ago probably not like when i was when i told my my father that i now make a living creating content about disney princesses he laughed at me <laughs> um because he never never thought that's what you know the vein i would go down and, and quite frankly neither did i because when you know i first looked at the game i'm like well the ip doesn't really appeal to me i'm not a massive disney guy and now i'm sitting here like where's mushu print me cards that i care about yeah. you know and so my entire my entire mentality has changed based on how positive the gameplay experience has been and you're right they're, they're definitely going to be significantly more successful because that experience exists i just think it's also fair to say they probably weren't going to fail if it didn't yeah, I don't think they were gonna. I don't think they were gonna lose money. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they were gonna. They were gonna lose money. Um, it's interesting. Ravensburger has a lot of questions to ask. Um, I remember. You know, I want to go into too much attention, but they. I mean, they hired their community manager like super late into the process of them actually launching. Their spoiler stuff was very lackluster, and it was clear that they didn't have direction. And I remember seeing the posting on LinkedIn for it, like, and it was very, very late that they got their community manager and person that managed the social media and stuff. Ravensburger is going to be, or they are at this point, or they're getting close to 
like a massively successful card game, internationally successful, and they're going to have to figure out all the pain, like all of the struggles that will come with that because it is very complicated. Like the logistics of printing cards is tough. Um, getting enough cards printed, printing, you know, not too much, et cetera. But especially when it comes to stuff like organized play, like I think the current Locana League system is terrible. Um, I understand that some people like it. They like the pins um, and stuff like that. And I think that's cool. And you can engage with the game however you want. But ultimately what's incentivizing players to show up and play is like super weak compared to other card games. Um, and I, I think it's important to remember that, unfortunately, for better or worse, Ravensburger has been a board game company for mm. a very long time prior to this. Um, you know, they were awarded the contract through confidence because of their previous work with, with Disney, and they are, they're a reliable producer and distribution house. And we can all sit here and play as, as players and go, man, you should do this, and you should do that, and this is what we want. And I hope they'll listen. I really do. But they're, they're going to have to learn. It sucks, but they don't know any better. They don't have the wealth of experience from a decade of previous card games where they've put pins out and people haven't liked them and they've made the switch and changed to something else. There's, I, I would expect a lot of changes going forward in Lorcana where it's like, here's the tournament structure and everyone goes, this could be a bit better. And they, they kind of continue to refine and tweak and twist because they have no precedent to, to work from. Um, so I'm, I'm still hopeful that they'll improve because at the minute we, yeah, everything we have is really good quality. So I have no reason to believe that, uh, when they figure out the details behind the stuff they weren't so privy to and didn't have quite as quite a dense understanding of that it won't be the same level of quality. Uh, and I'm saying that on the internet so you can all laugh at me later when I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I think you'll actually be right. I actually think, I, I do think you'll be right. Um, Ravensburger has already shown the initial signs of responding to, uh, just like blaring issues with their game. Like I think that their current uh, spoiler like release, like their engagement on social media is infinitely better than it was prior to release. Um, mm -hmm. They moved the printing date up because they know that card availability is a huge pain point. They came out with rules. Like they didn't have to do that. There was so much shit that they didn't have to do that they did to make this game functional. And they're starting to eat like, I talked about this like a million times on the on, on the podcast. It's like they have to they have to check these few boxes to foster a grassroots tournament scene. They've gotten pretty close to checking it. They don't quite have a judge program yet, but they gave us enough rules that we can actually do some of this stuff. And th by them making that effort, they've shown that they do want to be successful to an extent in that field. Hundred percent to, to their players, and it definitely feels more like they didn't know they needed these things and are now figuring them out more than they sat there and went ah we'll neglect all those things and then went oh maybe not. I, and, and being the the former there is much more appealing as a player when you look at a company who went, oh, I, I didn't know that I needed to do that. I'm sorry. Let me figure out how to best do it for you. And the company that sat there and went, you don't want those things. We know better than you. <laughs> uh, maybe you do want those things. Uh, fair enough. You know, and and I, that, that, I, I would much rather have the former. And that's what Ravensburger feels like so far. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Howling Minds, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, uh, hitting us with a wealth of knowledge. For people listening, just talk about what you're up to, where they can find you, et cetera. Yeah, sure. Um, so if you want to find me personally, you want to talk about all things card games, listen to a British guy for a bit, or just have me read you a bedtime story, uh, I can do that on uh, X or Twitter at Howling Minds. You can come and find me there. If you just want content from me, the best places to go are going to be, uh, I'm on YouTube for all things Lorcana at Beyond the Inkwell. I'm on Twitch for other stuff occasionally if I've got some free time. And then my written work at the moment is on both Channel Fireball and TCG Player. Uh, all the Lorcana stuff is on TCG Player. You'll find my name slapped on it. Uh, and I'll even be in a few more places very soon that I'm not legally allowed to talk about yet. So keep keep your eyes open for uh, 
for more more lots of my name in places. No but those those are the, for the main. Uh, 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 I would I would very quickly not have an NDA to break. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> out there afterwards. But yeah, plenty of places. Come and say hi. Uh, and hopefully I'll see you in a number of tournaments where you can school me in the Ruby Amethyst mirror. Uh, are you going to Flesh and Blood Worlds? Uh, so in limbo at this moment in time, finance is depending, but uh, hoping to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be casting, which is actually not public, but uh, all you guys don't play Flesh and Blood, so it's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Brendan's gonna give me a nudge after this and be like, uh, "Yeah, we've got space on the casket desk," and I'm definitely going. I wish, I wish I chose. Uh, unfortunately, it's not. It's a. Uh, it's not my decision. It's actually it's a very shrouded mystery. But uh, yeah, I'm excited. I I love I love traveling over to Europe. Unfortunately, it's gonna be a little bit cold this time. It's in November. Uh, it's Barcelona. You'll be. Fine. Yeah, Barcelona will be yeah, fine. Be you, can't right. go, you can't go anywhere else. So it's like I was gonna do a trip, and I was like, "Wait, it's freezing, and it's gonna be Christmas." <laughs> um. Yeah. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. Again, uh, deck lists, uh, sort of links to where we grab the deck list from, all that, because I don't have all the Dreamborn links like I usually do, but I'll be linking to the articles where we got the deck list, uh, the Twitter post where we got the deck list, um, and I'll link my Ruby Amethyst list as well. Um, so check that out there. Again, if you're listening on a podcast platform, it'll be in the description. And if you're listening on YouTube, we had images pop up while we were talking, but the, descri- uh, the sort of links will be in the description as well. I want to thank you so much all for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you.